Oh, man. It's good to sing, and it's good to worship, and it's good to think about, you know, what we believe. What I love about what DJ does for us and what the worship team does for us every week is before I ever stand up to bring a message that I believe is from God to you, I feel like we've sung it a hundred times. And this morning, all we've done is we've sung over and over again these incredible songs, these anthems of faith, declaring what we believe. And and you know this, but if if we choose to believe what we say we believe, it it literally has the power to change everything. Uh, Do you remember the first time uh, you wrote a note like this? I remember I was in uh, sixth grade and there was a girl and, you know, this was before, you know, I could text anybody. There wasn't a cell phone, and she didn't have one anyway. Uh, there wasn't a Facebook where I could go stalk her. And so what you did back in those days in sixth grade when I was in middle school was you had to write a note like this that you would give to your friend that would give to her friend that would give to her. Right? This is like, this is the ancient form of texting, guys. And uh, so, uh, you know, I, I saw her. She was cute. She kind of smiled when I looked at her, and I thought, yeah, this could work out. This could be something. You know, we could have a house one day and some kids. It'd be amazing. I'm kidding. In sixth grade, I didn't think about any of those things. Um, but I wrote a note like this, and it said, uh, will you go out with me? Check yes or no. Now, I don't know why I worded the question that way. We weren't going to go anywhere. Let's just be honest. I couldn't drive. I didn't have a car. My parents were going to take me anyway with some girl. This wasn't going to happen. But this is the way that you ask the question. You know, will you go out with me? Do you want to go out with me? Check yes or no. And if you weren't sure, you could also add a third box that said, maybe. And so this was like, you know, yes, no. And then sort of the, the, the third option, a little more ambiguous, it was kind of like saying no without saying no, a little softer, you know, for all of you females that wanted to have mercy on us guys. You could check the maybe box, which really meant no, but it gave us a little bit of hope, right? You know, and we would send out these notes as, as young, you know, kids in middle school, and we were hoping to get it back from her friend to our friend back to us to, to find out if we were going to go out or not. And then even if she did check yes, the truth is, we never even talked. <laughs> we were in this relationship and everybody knew it, but it meant, it meant nothing except that we had a significant other that in middle school was just like a person that existed that, you know, had our best interest at heart. And that was about it. You know, we would give a high five on the playground. That was about it. You know, kind of crazy. You know, it, we spend all of our lives doing this, I think, because deep inside of all of us, there is this really powerful fear and it's the fear of rejection. And, and you, you know this if you've ever gotten this note back and somebody checked the box, no. Man, how, how bad that felt. And what you and I do on some level, uh, in some way, in some form every day is we send out these little memos to people, these little notes to people. And what we're looking for is for them to check the yes box. You know, do you like me? Will you accept me? You know, can I be your friend? And whenever it comes back yes, we feel good. And whenever it comes back no, it really... If we're honest, it stings and it hurts. I don't know if you ever saw the movie, um, We Bought a Zoo. It came out a few years ago, kind of a family film. And inside of this movie, uh, a really neat movie, uh, there's a scene between a father and a son. Uh, the dad is, in the movie, his character is Ben, and then the son is Dylan. And, and, and the son is kind of going through a very similar thing. There's this girl he likes, and he doesn't know what to do. And he, he's having trouble working up the courage to, to, to ask her if she likes him too. And I want you to, to lean in. There's a clip about a minute long. And I want you to, to hear the advice that this father gives his son. If you would, uh, watch the screens. What happened with you and Lily? I don't know. I guess I didn't listen to something she told me or something. I mean, I liked her. 
It's like you embarrass yourself if you say something, and you embarrass yourself if you don't. You know, sometimes all you need is 20 seconds of insane courage. Just literally 20 seconds of just embarrassing bravery. And I promise you, something great will come of it. Sometimes all you need is 20 seconds of insane courage, 20 seconds of embarrassing, embarrassing courage, bravery. I love that. I love that. And I think that's true for a lot of us, that if we could just muster up a small amount of courage for a small amount of time, amazing things could happen for us. But for whatever reason, for whatever reason, the fear and the power of the possibility of rejection is one of those things that has the ability to really cripple us and paralyze us. Some of you, if I'm being honest, some of you don't get this. For you, if you ever face rejection, if you ever get a no, if it ever happens to you, you're able to, 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 to get out of bed the next morning and it's no big deal. You, life goes on for you. Like, I don't know why so you're wired differently and it's not a big deal for you. Some of you, this is an incredibly big deal. Like you experience rejection and when it happens, it is crippling, it is paralyzing. And you are really, honestly, you're afraid. You're afraid of that. And it has this ability over your life to really change the course of your life. And maybe it was because, you know, at some point in your life, maybe when you were even young, you know, something happened where, where you were looking for acceptance from someone, maybe a teacher, maybe a coach, maybe a parent, maybe someone that was influential in your life. And for whatever reason, they shut you down. They shut you out. Maybe they embarrassed you. Maybe they did something that was really hurtful to you. And it felt like rejection. And ever since that day, it's been really, really hard for you to overcome that. One thing I know is true. This fear of rejection has such incredible power. And what happens is not only does it just emotionally have power over us, but when the enemy gets a hold of it and he's able to wield that tool in his toolbox over our lives, it has the power not only to damage our relationship with people, it has the ability to damage our relationship and our perception of God. And so what you'll do and what I'll do when we struggle with this fear of rejection is we'll spend all of our days trying to win the approval of people and trying to win the approval of God. Even our entire social media lives, it's all based around how many likes we get. Some of you, you'll do this. You'll take a picture, you'll you'll put up a post, and you'll sit and you'll watch and you'll wait. And what you're watching for, what you're waiting for is to see how many likes you get. And if you get a certain amount of likes, and who knows what the number is, but if you get a certain amount of likes, or the certain people, if they like what you put out there, what you post, or the picture you put on Instagram, or the post you put on Facebook, whatever it is, then all of a sudden your mood is changed because of that. Like you have a visceral reaction to that. I mean, as I talk about it, do you see that there's a problem with this? You know? And if you don't, that also affects your mood and, and your demeanor for the rest of the day sometimes. Because the, 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 the power that you've put in other people's hands to either like or dislike, to accept or to reject what you've put up there has taken root in your world and in your life. And it's changing the course of your days because you're living your life looking for the approval of people. And some of you are living your life looking for the approval of God. All right, in this series, we're talking about you choosing to believe and about you and I having the ability to choose faith over fear when it presents itself in our lives. And the way we're 
the way we're talking about this is we're walking through different Old Testament stories of different Old Testament heroes of faith, people that lived centuries ago who were the people of God, who were far from perfect, mind you, but they showed us a glimpse in their life what it looks like to be men and women of faith. And today, today what I want to do is I want to share with you a story you're probably familiar with, a story of a woman who had incredible faith, especially in an incredible time, difficult time. You may know her by the name Esther. She has a, a whole book in your, in your Bible dedicated to her story. And by the way, it's a pretty incredible story, about 10 chapters, I think. You should read it sometime if you have time later today. You can read it in one sitting. There's a good guy. There's a bad guy. There's a hero and a villain. There's an incredible plot line and story. Uh, I'll, spoiler alert, at the very end, everybody is saved and, 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 and God wins the day. I'll tell you how it ends. But read the story. It's a pretty amazing story. But throughout the, the story of Esther, we, we find this critical moment in her life where she faces the fear of rejection. And it's, it's powerful because in this moment, for her, rejection equals death. Now, I, I know sometimes you feel like you die when someone rejects you, but this was going to be like a, an actual possibility, a, a reality for her if, if she entered this moment and she faced true rejection. If you don't know the story, let me back up and I'm just going to recap it for you. There's, there's way more to the story than I'm going to tell you. But let me give you some of the highlights to kind of help you lean into what happens with Esther. Uh, way back in the day, in, the, king, uh, in, the, in the, the, the empire that was Persia, the king of Persia got really mad at his queen. There's a story there. But the end of the story is he does away with her. And so the king needs a new queen. So what he does is he holds like this year-long beauty contest looking for who was going to be the next queen of Persia, who was going to be his next queen. And he kind of did this like American Idol style. You know, there were, there were contestants everywhere coming from all over, and they would come before the judges, except there was just one judge, him. And he was, he was going to pick which one would be, which woman was going to be the next queen of Persia. All right? And, and all these women at different times come, come before his court, and finally Esther comes before him. Esther was a young Jewish girl. She comes before the king of Persia, and, and the Bible tells us in Esther 2.17 that, that the king of Persia, he loved her more than any of the others that he had seen. And so right there on the spot, he makes Esther the next queen, the next queen of Persia. Well, Esther had this uncle Mordecai who loved her dearly, and he would sit every day outside the palace gates, kind of as a way to be protective and keep an eye on her, make sure things were going well for her. And, and there, was, uh, there was this other guy named Haman. Now, Haman was a guy who was pretty high up in the administration of the king of Persia. And, and, and he was pretty proud of that. And every day as he would walk by the palace gates, there was sort of this ceremonial custom that, that took place where people would kind of bow down and pay homage to Haman because of his power, his prestige, his position. Everybody that is except for one guy, you guessed it, Esther's uncle, Mordecai. Whenever he would pass by, Mordecai would never bow down to Haman because Mordecai was a devout Jew. And because of his faith in God and his belief in, in him, he would refuse to bow down to any man. And this made Haman nuts. I mean, it drove him insane. It made him crazy that everyone would give him the honor and the respect that he thought he was due, except for this one guy who was a Jew and he wouldn't do it because of his religion. And boy, oh boy, did that make him mad. So, Haman, because of his power, and this is what people that have power do, right? They, they, they look to fix problems with their power. He, he used his power to go to the king and he said, you know, we got to do something about this. There's a people in this land that don't respect and appreciate your authority. So I want you to write an edict 
that says we can just kill them all. And the king, not having the whole story, says, sure, he didn't care. And he writes, he writes this, this thing in the law that says on this certain day, all the Jews in the, in the kingdom of Persia are going to be killed. Well, Mordecai finds out about this, this plan. And he sends this message to Esther, his niece. And I want you to hear the exchange that takes place. You probably are familiar with this, but I want you to lean in and listen to this, this conversation, this short conversation between Mordecai and Esther. In verse 10, we read this. Esther told Hathach. Now, Hathach is a weird name. This is like, just think of it as AT&T. It's T-Mobile. This is your tech service, okay? This is her data plan. She told this guy to go back and relay this message to Mordecai. All the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter. Now, this is important because what Mordecai wanted was for Esther to go before the king and plead her case, plead the case of her people and say, hey, I don't know if you know this has happened, but this has happened, and I want you to stop it. And Esther says to Mordecai, you know, you know what everybody in the world knows, that if anyone goes before the king of Persia without being summoned, without being invited, and he doesn't extend his golden scepter, that person is, is dead, like it's over in that exact moment. Do you realize what you're asking me to do? And then she says this, And the king has not called me to come to him for 30 days. So Hathach gave Esther's message to Mordecai. Esther knows that what she should do is go and plead her case for herself and for her people, but she also knows that if she does, there's a 50-50 chance that her life is done. What is she afraid of? On a very simple, basic level, she is fearful of being rejected by the king. And if he rejects her, she knows the penalty is death for approaching him without being summoned. Verse 13, Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you are in the palace that you're going to escape when all the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, Deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. And who knows, one of the most famous lines ever written, who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. So you know what Esther did? She sent word back to Mordecai. And she said, okay, I want you to ask every Jew in the kingdom of Persia to fast from food and water for three days. Do you sense how nervous she was? Do you sense how afraid she was? But then, and again, there's a longer story here. Esther goes before the king of Persia. And do you know why I think she did that? I think Esther was able to choose faith over fear in that moment because she knew something that If you and I could ever get our hearts and minds around this one simple fact, it has the power to literally change everything about us. See, the reason I think that Esther was able to muster up the courage to get those 20 seconds of insane courage, those 20 seconds of embarrassing bravery to go before the king of Persia, knowing that her very own life was on the line, was because Esther already knew 
who she was and whose she was. She knew who she believed in and who she belonged to. She knew that she was about to go before the king of Persia, hoping for his acceptance, but she was already coming to the king of Persia because she had been accepted by the king of kings. The fate of her life wasn't in the king of Persia. The fate of her life was in the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And Esther was able to go before this king. And yeah, she was hoping that he would extend his golden scepter. But she was able to go before this king choosing faith over fear because she knew ultimately that her hands were in the fate of another king. And I'll tell you, for you and I, if we could ever get our hearts and minds around this this incredible truth that that you are already loved. That you have already been accepted. That, that you, just as you are, are loved deeply by the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and that you, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you can enter your king's throne room at any point, and he will always extend his golden scepter to, to you because, because you're welcome. Because you are already loved. And here's the thing that I think we have so much trouble with is that, that there is nothing that you could ever do to make God love you less. Like, like God, loves, God can't love you any more or any less than he loves you right now because his love for you is perfect. That's why his love for you is unconditional. It's unchanging. He loved you. I know his love for you is unconditional, and here's how I know it. He sent Jesus to die for you long before you ever sinned, long before you ever made those mistakes, long before you made those bad choices, long before you let those people down, long before you ever did any of that. He already loved you just the way you are. He already accepted you and he declared his love for you when he sent Jesus to you. And by the way, your behavior doesn't dictate God's love for you. Like the degree of your behavior doesn't affect the degree of his love for you. You were loved exactly the way you are and you were accepted by God exactly the way you are because you are a child of God. And man, we have a good, good father. And so there's nothing you could ever do. You see, Jesus didn't die for you on one condition. That's nowhere in the bylaws. That's not written anywhere in the book. Jesus didn't die for you on one condition. His love for you is unchanging, unconditional. You don't deserve it and you couldn't earn it. And I know that's frustrating to you, but he loves you just the way you are. You were already loved. You were already accepted from the King of kings and the God of gods, the Lord of lords. And what could change everything for you and for me is if we could live from acceptance and not for acceptance. If we could somehow change the direction of our lives to live from the fact that we are already loved, we are already accepted by God and stop living for the acceptance of people and for the praises of people, but live from a place, from the reality that we are already loved and we are already accepted by God, then you could face any fear of rejection because you would know what Esther knows, that your fate is in the hands of another. And you know how that story ends. Now, I'll be honest. We could stop the message right there today. 
Because that's huge. And I don't know if it's getting in your heart and mind like it's been in mine all week, crawling around and messing you up. But if you can come around this fact that you were already loved and you were already accepted and you need to live from that place instead of for that place, it can change everything. But it's not enough. It's not enough. I know it's not enough because I saw, I saw this post on Facebook this week. You'll see the picture on the screen behind me. Leah Pask is the mother of a middle school boy in Tallahassee, Florida. And two weeks ago, she put this picture and she wrote these words. And I want to read them to you. Leah said, several times lately, I've tried to remember my time in middle school. Did I like my teachers? Do I even remember them? Did I have many friends? Did I sit with anyone at lunch? Just how mean were kids really? I remember one kid on the bus called me Tammy Faye Baker because I started awkwardly wearing eyeliner in the sixth grade. And I remember being tough and calling him a silly name back, but when he couldn't see me anymore, I cried. I do remember middle school being scary and hard. And now that I have a child starting middle school, I have feelings of anxiety for him. And they can be overwhelming if I let them. Sometimes I'm grateful for his autism. That may sound like a terrible thing to say. But in some ways, I think, I hope it shields him. He doesn't seem to notice when people stare at him when he flaps his hands. He doesn't seem to notice that he doesn't get invited to birthday parties anymore. And he doesn't seem to mind if he eats lunch alone. It's one of my daily questions for him. Was there a time today that you felt sad? Who did you eat lunch with today? Sometimes the answer is a classmate. But most days it's nobody. Those are the days I feel sad for him. But he doesn't seem to mind. He is a super sweet child who always has a smile and a hug for everyone he meets. A friend of mine sent this beautiful picture to me today. And when I saw it with a caption, Travis Rudolph is eating lunch with your son, I replied, who is that? He said, FSU football player. Then I had tears streaming down my face. Travis Rudolph, a wide receiver at Florida State, and several other FSU players visited my son's school today. I'm not sure what exactly made this incredibly kind man share a lunch table with my son. But I'm happy to say that it will not be soon forgotten. This is one day I didn't have to worry if my sweet boy ate lunch alone. Because he sat across from someone who is a hero in many eyes. Travis Rudolph, thank you so much. You made this mama exceedingly happy. And you've made us fans for life. You see, here's the message. You and I know a truth that has the power to change lives. That you and I are accepted exactly as we are by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, by our Heavenly Father. So what happens when we live from that place and we start showing others around us that they too are already loved? And they too are already accepted just as they are by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You see, it's one thing for us to get ourselves around this message that, that, that we need to live from this place, that to live from the place that we are already loved and already accepted and we have nothing to fear. But it's a whole other deal for us to then take that and love other people the way God has already loved us and to show them and to tell them that they too are valued and that they too are loved 
by God just because of who they are. When Travis Rudolph sat down with this young, young kid, he was communicating a powerful truth. And that, they are already, that he was already loved just the way he is. And he had value and worth. A couple of weeks ago, I got to, to do the wedding for two of my very best friends. Mario Lozano and Lauren Beasley were getting married. And, and leading up to that day, uh, I was able to do counseling with them over and over again and share with them some different thoughts and ideas. But from the very first time we spoke, I said, there's one truth that we're going to talk about every time, and we're going to talk about it even the day you get married. And I want you to always remember and never forget this one thing, that when you come together in marriage, that Mario, your job from this day forward is to be the manifest presence of the love of Jesus Christ to Lauren. You're to love her the way Christ loves you, and you're to demonstrate to her the way Christ loves her. That's your job as a husband, as a man, as, 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 as the person that is marrying Lauren. And Lauren, by the way, You are to be the manifest presence of the love of God to Mario. You're to to love Mario the way Christ loves Mario. You're You're to love Mario the way Christ loves you. Like this is what happens in marriage is God gives you someone, God puts someone in your life to love you the way he loves you, to show you that in a very tangible, physical, very present way. This is what you're supposed to do. And if you do this from this day forward, Mario, if you love Lauren the way Christ loves you and the way Christ loves her, and Lauren, if you love Mario the way Christ loves you and the way Christ loves her, I can guarantee you, Things will go well for you. In church, this is who we are supposed to be to each other. And there's a big idea. But also to our world. And we, the church, if we are anything, we are to be the manifest presence. The manifest presence of the love of God to the people around us. We are to show, we are to communicate what the love of God looks like. And that means that we, man... That we've got to communicate. We've got a big job to communicate that people are loved. You are loved. We are to communicate. We are to to demonstrate that you are accepted. And you don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to do anything to get it. We're going to love you just because you are a child of God. You are a son. You are a daughter. You are a person created in the image of God. That is who you are. And that is enough. Maybe somewhere along the way someone said you're not good enough. You are good enough when it comes to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Somewhere along the way, you and I were sold a bill of goods. Someone told us something that wasn't true. That because of something I said or something I did or something I thought, that God would reject me. That God would reject you. And that you had to do something to make things right. Let me just correct that in 30 seconds or less. It's not about what you do. It's never been. It's about what Christ has already done. And when he died on that cross, he declared his love for you. And that is unchanging. Now, in that moment, he gave you a choice. And I'll tell you, this may be the most purest picture of love there has ever, ever been. Because God loves you enough that he lets you choose to love him back or to reject him. But that is on you. That is not on God. His love for you has been declared and it is unchanging and it's unconditional and it's unrelenting and it's unyielding and it's always pursuing and it's always coming after you because he wants you to know. He wants you to know that you are his son and you are his daughter and there was nothing that would make him happier today than if you chose to accept him because he has already accepted you. 
And when you get your mind around that, and then when you lean into that, and then when you, when you announce that to the people in your world, when you, when you, when you let people in your circle of influence and, and, and the people that are around you in your daily lives, when you start to value them and love them, accept them, not for anything they've done, but simply because of who they are, then they begin to realize there is something different about you. And what is different is that you are not living for the acceptance and the praises of people. You are living from the praises and the acceptance of God. And you know like Esther knew, who you belong to. And you know, like she knew, who you believe in. And you know what she knew. That your hand, your fate is in the hand of the King of Kings. And you know where you stand with him. Church, if you would, stand. You may wonder what happened to Esther. She went before that king... He extended his golden scepter. And when he discovered what was going on, he quickly made things right. He reversed the law he had written and vetoed that whole deal. Because Esther found 20 seconds of insane courage, the Jewish people lived. And because they lived, one day, Jesus came and he was born. Because he came and because he lived, you and I have that opportunity today to choose to live too, to choose to believe, to choose faith over fear. You see, you don't have to fear rejection just because you've got enough willpower to do it. You can lean into faith because of what you believe and what you know is true about God. He's with you just like he's with Esther. He's with you today. Whatever you're afraid of, you don't have to worry. We're going to sing a song in a minute, and I'm going to ask our elders just to kind of to move around the audience. And if, if, if they know some of you are struggling, just to pray with you. And if it happens, don't be embarrassed. Just pray. And, and if you need prayer, just go to one of them. And they would love to put a hand on your shoulder and just, just pray for you. If there's something that you're afraid of, if there's something you're worried about, concerned about, if there's an area in your life where right now there's fear, Let's bring that before God. The one who, by the way, is for you. The one who is with you. And the one who already loves you and already accepts you. And then let's spend the rest of our time today, the rest of our time this week, living from a place, from a place of acceptance, not for acceptance. And then let's, and I want you to do this, not just think about it. I want you to do this. I want you to find a way to love somebody else like Travis Rudolph did. I want you to find a way to show, to demonstrate, to communicate to someone else that they too are already loved, already accepted by God. Because it's a truth that's changed my life. I think it's a truth that's changed your life. And it's a truth that will change the lives of everyone in the world if we'll just show and tell them about this kind of love. Let's sing.